Good morning. Told the kids if they did a good job decorating the cookies, I get about a dozen cookies to eat during my message. So they're a little jealous about that. But it's certainly beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? The kids did a great job, and, and the workers were there as well. They've practiced a lot, so they did a good job helping teach us what Christmas is like. There's all these decorations. We've got snow outside, uh, all the parties going on, the extra eating, of course, the extra shopping. I like how someone said not only is it beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, it's beginning to cost a lot like Christmas, right? I'm always amazed how Americans will spend billions and billions of dollars around Christmas time. Certainly some of it goes to those things that are going to break. They won't last winter very long. But there are those who give to those who really have in need. And so I want to thank those who have been giving towards the giving tree. Perhaps you sponsored a Pastor Juan and his wife during a marriage retreat that Pastor Neil and others will be going to in the month of February. Perhaps you sponsored a teenager to go to a winter retreat called YEC, Youth Encountering Christ. Uh, Or perhaps you've been picking up some gift cards to some grocery stores that help out some seniors or other families in in our area that we know about. Perhaps you've been given to a Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is a gift towards missionaries. 100% of that gift goes directly to the missionaries. Just so you know, part of our budget goes to Lottie Moon Christmas offering throughout the year so that we can give 100% towards the missionaries, as well as our normal giving towards missionaries and their organizations that support them. So I appreciate that. We also thank you for your ongoing tithes and offerings that support the Hope Chapel budget, as well as above and beyond uh, that with your in, year in giving. So those, those are some of the things that we expect around Christmas time, right? We expect those around Christmas time. And there are some things that we don't quite expect around Christmas. Some of those are you going through Christmas without a loved one unexpectedly this year. And as Neil mentioned, we love to get together on a, a blue Christmas luncheon on Wednesday. Some of you are in between jobs and you're financially struggling and that's not really what you want to be around Christmas time. Or perhaps some of you are in some uh, relationship struggles and that's not what you you want happening around Christmas. It's unexpected and it's unwelcome. Uh, We have upside down Christmas tree. That's unexpected. What is that all about? Uh, You know, the Christmas tree was kind of a tradition that Christians stole from pagans to symbolize uh, an evergreen being everlasting God. And it it symbolized the Trinity as God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But then in about the 12th century, some Central and Eastern European countries began to turn them upside down to symbolize how Jesus came from heaven to earth. And if you look at an upside down Christmas tree, it's almost like the cross upside down. So there's a lot of symbolism and history in there, even though it's quite unexpected. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, there was certainly things that were unexpected. And we've been talking about those for the last couple of weeks. Neil's talked about the lineage, the family tree, the heritage of Jesus. And there certainly is some questionable characters in his family tree. For someone who was the rising king, someone who was the righteous savior, there were some, some odd people in that lineage. There were some strangers and outsiders that found their way into that family tree. And that gives us some hope about for us as well. And we also then learn about the the shepherds. Who are they? They're the ones that get invited to the arrival of Jesus. They're just some guys out in the field at night watching their sheep. And they're the ones that get invited to see Jesus being born. Those things are unexpected. 
And God was doing some interesting things on the arrival of Jesus. And I want to look at some more of those things about the unexpectedness of his arrival and his life on earth. Some of the things that we're going to look at don't quite seem to be those things that fit a king, someone who was bringing peace to all men. In the Bible, there's four books that talk about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the Gospels. Only two of them talk about the birth of Jesus, Matthew and in Luke. And in both Matthew and Luke, we hear some amazing things about this coming Messiah. We hear them from Zechariah. We hear them from Mary. We hear them from Joseph, from all the angels, the angels that's visited Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and all the shepherds. All of these wonderful things about the arriving Messiah. In fact, I want us to kind of look at a couple of those. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is uh, the first book in the New Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, this is on page... 813, 813, Matthew chapter 1, and starting in verse 18, says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Have that conversation. With Joseph. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And in many ways, we would not blame him. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream. Wouldn't that be great? Anytime you have a tough decision, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. It's really tough. Do I do this? Do I do that? What do I do? Ah, an angel shows up and tells me what to do. That'd be wonderful. But we know that that doesn't happen often. But this is a special, unique moment in history. And the angel said, I want to make sure that you understand what's going on. So he says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She's not lying. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So the angel is proclaiming, this child will save his people from their sins. Pretty amazing. Look over at Luke, the other gospel that records the birth of Jesus. Luke, this is on page 865. In the Bibles, in the chairs, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, says, Then the angel told her, so an angel showed up to Joseph earlier, the angel shows up to Mary. This is actually earlier in the timeline, but in the context of Luke being the later gospel. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So there are some pretty amazing things being proclaimed about this Messiah, about this child, about Jesus. 
And from their vantage point, it's easy to think that this child would grow up and would overthrow the Roman Empire and would set up a new rule of order with Israel on top. That's what's expected. And and looking at these two revelations from the angels, it's easy to see that this is what is expected. But I want to look at one other insight about his birth. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. You'll have to turn the page over to 868. Luke chapter 2 in verse 25. Jesus was already born. He was circumcised eight days later. It was at least a month after that because Mary had to fulfill the days of purification according to the law from giving birth to a child. Uh, Giving birth to a male was 33 days. Giving birth to a female was 66 days, according to Leviticus chapter 12. So it was at least a month later, she fulfilled this days of perfect purification. They went into the temple, and they were offering a sacrifice as a dedication to the Lord for this child. And then there was this guy named Simeon that came to them and shared a little different insight about this child. So look at me, Luke chapter 2, in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Some of the similar things that they had heard from the angels, Mary and Joseph. So his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, This child is destined to cause the fall of Rome. No, he says, to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be welcomed and rejoiced. No, it's a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon seems to suggest that there is going to be something happening unexpectedly. Things are not going to go as they would want them to. Mary's own soul is going to be pierced. And we know from our vantage point that this child would grow up and be hated, be hated by the religious leaders. Someone who would be beaten and bruised and bullied and tortured and crucified on the cross. A horrible way to die and a horrible thing for a mother to witness her son going through. A sword would pierce her own soul. And it's because as Jesus would reveal the hearts of those religious leaders, would reveal the hearts of many. And that sometimes is very opposed. When Jesus began to start his ministry when he was about 30 years old, his message was that he did not come to make friends per se. You can check this out in Matthew chapter 10. You can write this down, look it up later. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus says for himself, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I came to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So what in the world was God doing? Why was he shaking things up so much? Why didn't he just come down as a baby and as nice as that can seem and just offer forgiveness and give it to everyone? Why didn't he just bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men like we sing in the songs? Were the angels that proclaimed and testified about this child, were they mistaken? Did they get the wrong message? What is God up to? I think there's a few things that God wants to teach us and to teach them about his arrival. He was teaching them what true power is. What true power is. When you think about authority, when you think about power, what do you think about? You think about might. You think about control. You think about a certain tone and a certain voice and a certain authority and a certain privilege and a certain power. And God's saying, that's not power. I'm going to show you what true power is. I'm going to show you how power can destroy the places where people trust in. I can destroy the ideologies and the religious beliefs that people are putting their trust in. And here's how I'm going to do it. His power is best displayed quietly. His power is best displayed quietly. God desires to use the meek and the humble. Now, this is not to say that God does not want to use those with privilege or power or position, those with resources or connections or networks, because just imagine what God can do with what you have. Imagine what God can do with who you know. Imagine if all the resources you have access to, if all the people that you know, if everyone was gathered together to do God's purposes, wouldn't that be amazing? Think about all the technology that can be leveraged. Think about all the medicine and science and music and arts that can be leveraged for God's glory if everyone that you knew and everything you had access to were coming together and say, how can we use these resources to glorify God and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ around the world? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't God want to use it? Absolutely. God wants to use your position, your power, your privilege, your resources, your connections, your networks. He wants to use those. But the only way he's going to use those, if you have a spirit of humility and meekness. God wants to get the glory. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. We're merely humans created by one creator. And there's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about you. Acts 17 says it, we move and exist and have our being because of God. God holds our life in his hand. He holds all things together. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't have what we have. We wouldn't even know who we know. So it's all about God and God wants to get the glory. We are simple, simply tools among many tools on his workbench. See, in the past, God would attempt to use a person in political power to bring order and peace and prosperity to his nation Israel. But because so many of them would abuse their privilege and power and position, their resources for personal gain, they were not used by God. In fact, they were used to to bring judgment and disaster and war to the nation. 
So don't try to think that I need to have privilege and position and power and resources and and, and networks in order to do something for God because those can be used against you. It could be a curse to you and to your family and even to this region if they are not used accordingly, if they are used arrogantly just for yourself. Jesus really wanted to make this statement as his arrival. With the arrival of Jesus, God was not saying, I just need to put a better and a trusted person in the position. You know, if you want something done, you just got to do it yourself. So here I go. I got to get in the position. I'm going to make myself king. I'm going to make myself the priest so that the right things can get done. And God knows that there is no political system that can fix the world. There is no political system that can fix the world. There's no religious ideology that could fix the world. There is no religious ideology that can fix the world. Just having the right person as the king and the right person as the priest is not the answer because the darkness of this world is a lot darker than you and I may want to realize. And that's what we have to focus on, the darkness that lies within a human heart, the heart of the man, the heart of the woman. That's the problem. Those are the things that cannot be fixed with just control or trying to unify humanity. So when God arrives on the scene, he's not going to come in this expected power and might as he did in various times in the past. He wanted to show that there was great power in vulnerability, in meekness, in humility, in the quiet. In the quiet. Jesus wasn't born in a castle. His mother wasn't a queen. His stepdad was a blue-collared worker. They grew up in a town called Nazareth where Nathaniel, the apostle, when first introduced to, about Jesus from Philip, he says, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, oh, come and see. Come and check it out. Jesus does not fit the image of this rising power with privilege and position. Isaiah 55, verse 2, you can write this down and look it up later. Isaiah 55, verse 2, says that the arriving Messiah would have no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. There is nothing about Jesus, not even his looks, that would rally people around him and promote him as king. During his life, we see that Jesus would minister quietly. Remember when he turned water into wine at the wedding? He didn't even want to do the miracle. It was his mother Mary saying, show him what you can do. Show him. He's like, I don't want to, woman. Leave me alone. No, no, show him just a little bit. So he turns water into wine, but he didn't want to display his power openly. As he began to heal people, people from all over the region were coming to be healed. And he told his disciples, hey, let's build a hospital so we can take care of these people. No, he said, we got to get out of here. Let's get out of here and go to another town because I did not come to fix people's earthly circumstances. I came to preach and to teach and to offer the forgiveness of sins. We got to get out of here. Let's be quiet about our mission. Satan tries to tempt Jesus, fall off the temple, and a bunch of angels will save you, show your great power. Jesus refused. No, I'm not going to do it. That's not why I'm here. Jesus is dying on the cross and people said, if he truly is the son of God, he'll call down a bunch of angels and you'll see he was the son of God. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do it. 
I'm displaying my power quietly. And that gives all of us great hope. That gives all of us great hope. Because there is nothing that stands in the way of being used by God if we're humble. There's absolutely nothing about you can stand in the way of being used by God unless you're humble. It doesn't matter where you were born, whether you were born in Bolton or Brooklyn. It doesn't matter if you were born in a family with two loving parents or if you were born in a blended family or if your dad walked out on you. Just think about Jesus, his stepdad, Joseph. We have no idea about Joseph. We see Joseph with Jesus at the temple when he's age 12, but we don't know anything else about, G- about Joseph. He may have died while Jesus was growing up. By the time he's on the cross, he looks to his apostle John and says, John, take care of my mother, Mary. So it doesn't matter if you were, if you were uh, accepted Christ later in your life, if you're the only one in your family that believes about Jesus. It doesn't matter. The brothers of Jesus, they didn't even believe until Jesus rose from the grave years later. You have been given a specific ministry wherever you are, whatever circumstance you find yourself, whether you have privilege or whether you don't, whether you have position whether you don't, whether you have resources or you don't, whether you have connections or you don't, whether you have networks or you don't, you have been given a ministry wherever you are. You may not feel equipped to do great things for God because you don't have an amazing voice where you can proclaim his praises on the stage. You may not feel like you have the resources to go and help the people who are in need, but God's not looking for that. He's not looking for a superhero. He's not looking for you to be a superstar. All he's looking for is your heart of humility. Doing things in the quiet. And that's when his power is displayed. So it's coming to the church in the middle of the week and cleaning it. Most of the people here probably have no clue who's coming in and cleaning the church. It's things like being an assistant to the teacher down in Kids Connect. You're not preparing a lesson. You're just showing up, assisting a teacher, getting the kids together, engaging them, connecting with them. It's things like taking a postcard, inviting someone to the Christmas Eve services. It's like sharing one of our things on our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or posting an encouragement Bible verse. It's things like making a meal for someone who just came out of surgery. It's writing cards of encouragement. No one's going to see that. The only one who's going to see that is for, it's God. But you don't do it for anybody else. You do it because it's for God's glory. And God says, that's how I'm building my kingdom. One by one, through the hearts of those who are simply willing to do whatever I ask in whatever situation and circumstance they find themselves. The one who looks at their life and says, I'm giving God the glory because it's not about what I can do. It's not what I have done. It's what he did. It's not what I can do. It's what he can do. And so I'm going to do whatever I can with a humble heart, in meekness, quietly. That's the power of God. God's power is also best displayed in the unfathomable. His power is best displayed through the unfathomable. God desires to use the nonsense 
before he uses the known sense. All right? The nonsense versus the known sense. I want to show you, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, just flip over, keep going towards the end in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, a very ungodly church who uh, had accepted Jesus Christ, and they're just learning how to live out this life uh, as a Christian. And he says in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, This is on page 970 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. Brothers, or the family of God, consider your calling. Consider what what it's like to be a Christian. Not many are wise from a human perspective. I think he just called you dumb. Not many are powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise. And God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so that he might bring nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Now, God's not saying that he doesn't want to use human wisdom, or at least what we would call human wisdom. God is an intelligent being who created us, to be rational, logical, and knowledgeable beings. We're not called to be dumb or ignorant. He's just saying we already are. Because we're not God. And so there are things about God, there are things that God does that just doesn't make sense. God is not trying to fit in our tiny box and understanding of him. God wants us to see the world through his eyes rather than through the lens of what we want to see it. And so there are things that are going to happen in your life that won't make sense. They'll be unexpected. He was telling them that he didn't want to set up the kingdom like they would have expected it to happen. He didn't want to have them think that in the days of David, That was the best thing for them. It wasn't the best thing for them. Long ago, when they wanted a king, he was telling them, you don't need a king. You don't want a king. So it's not the best thing for you to think that I'm going to restore the kingdom like in the days of David, like it was the good old days. I'm not going to restore and, 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 and re-energize the ongoing ritual sacrifice system because that's not the best thing to forgive you sins. It was always supposed to be about faith. It was always supposed to be about trusting in God as the king of their heart. It was always supposed to be about faith. It was always supposed to be about trusting God as the king of their heart, not a king in a certain position, not someone being a priest. But what happens, and what happened, is that we attempt to try to live out our faith in a world that doesn't believe in God. 
In a culture and in a world that doesn't want to seek and follow God's ways, we're trying to live our faith in that kind of culture, in that ideology. And what happened then and what happens now is we begin to adapt and merge and we place God in their understanding of God, those who don't even believe in a God. And so then we begin to doubt, is God a loving God? Yeah, I don't know why God would do that. God is maybe not in control. Maybe he doesn't have a plan for this world. Maybe he doesn't have a plan for my life. Maybe it really doesn't matter how I live my life. We begin to have those doubts. We begin to have those questions. See, the world thinks that the things of God are nonsense. They're foolish. It's foolish to think that God became a man through a virgin birth so that he could die on the cross and shed his blood to offer forgiveness of sins. That's crazy. That's crazy. But for those of us who believe, it is tremendous power. It has tremendous power. Yeah, I can't explain it all. Yeah, it seems kind of foolish. It seems kind of nonsense. But it's real. It gives me great power. It gives me a hope that will not disappoint. It gives me a confidence when life is falling apart. It gives me a purpose when I've hit rock bottom. There's tremendous power. And so the way in which we believe God, the way in which we operate our life, the way in which we interact with our neighbors and our strangers should be radically different. In some ways, in the good sense, they should look at you and say, that doesn't make sense. That's crazy what you do. It seems foolish. God wants to use your leadership skills, your ability to strategize, your talents, your smarts, but just like privilege and power and position, God wants to be able to use those only if we have a heart of humility. So sometimes we've got to take what we know and push it aside and believe the things that we can't even explain. Sometimes we have to believe the unfathomable rather than follow the fashionable. So it's things like going to church on a regular basis. You mean like every week? Yeah, every week. Going to church. Why do you do that? Well, for one thing, God commands me to. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so that you can encourage one another and spur one another on to good deeds. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. Sometimes I can't encourage you when I don't see you. And you can't encourage me when I don't see you. And so we need to come together on a regular basis so that we can encourage each other in how to live this Christian life in a world that doesn't believe in him, that doesn't want to follow him, that thinks all these things are foolish. We need one another. So yeah, making it a priority to attend church regularly. It's doing unfathomable things like saying no to sports or clubs or bingo night or whatever so you can go to a life group, so you can study God's word. It's unfathomable things like praying before you eat at lunch while your coworkers or your friends at school are already chomping on their chips. It's things like forgiving your spouse of their infidelity or their addiction to pornography, offering them grace and mercy and forgiveness and love instead of judgment. The world would say, you have every reason to leave them. Just like Joseph had every reason to leave Mary. 
but you're different. You're doing the unfathomable. You're doing the things that don't make sense because you're different. It's things like chaperoning summer camp for the youth at Crosswalk during your vacation week instead of relaxing by the lake. Why in the world would you do that? Because God is calling me to do something unfathomable. He's calling me to do things that don't make sense. And when you take those steps to do the unfathomable, that's when you see God's power work in your life. That's when you see God show up. Because God is going to use the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. And God wants to work in you. But we have to take that step of humility. We have to take a step of meekness. Saying, I need God's power, but it's in the quiet things. It's what you do when no one's looking. So the arrival of Jesus as a human in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals. He wasn't in a bedroom. He wasn't even in a castle fitting for a king. He was in a family with lowly income born in a town that's called the least of these. That came the one who was going to be the king of the kingdom, who was going to restore the kingdom, who was going to save people from their sins. That's not exactly as we would expect a person coming who claimed to be the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But God said, I want to show you what true power is. True power is in weakness. Because when you are humble, When you are weak, your strength is in God. God gets the glory. God wants the glory. He wants to use you, but it's in the power of faith. There is power in believing in what you can't see. There is power in believing the impossible. There is power in believing the foolishness, the things that don't make sense. There is such power in that because it's not about what I have done. It's about what he did. It's not about what I can do. It's about what he can do. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is. Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. And that sword would cut to the matter of the heart. And the heart, your heart, is the matter. So with that sword... He would reveal your heart, that your heart is a sinning heart that is in need of a Savior. And that's a message that was opposed long ago, and it's a message that's opposed today. That you and I are sinners in need of a Savior. But if we would humble ourselves and accept that truth, that I am a sinner And I need a Savior because I can't do it on my own. It's not about what I do. It's about what he did. That's when God's power works in your life. He changes you. He changes your heart. He does the unfathomable. Jesus says in Matthew, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is great power in being humble, in doing the things quietly, in doing the unfathomable, doing the things that don't make sense. Let's pray. Oh God, we are challenged by your word of humility. You set the example of what it means
to be humble, to come as a helpless baby, to become vulnerable. We don't like vulnerability. We don't like opening up ourselves like that. We want to have this facade of that we got it all together, that we, we have power, we have control, we have privilege, we have everything working out together. But God, we don't. Without you, our life is a mess. So God, may we accept the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we can rejoice that you provided a way not only to bring us salvation, but also to fix our lives. God, if there are those this morning who have never accepted that truth, who have never accepted the gift of salvation that you brought them, I pray that right down in their seat, they would be touched quietly. The Holy Spirit is speaking into their, their lives. That they would accept that truth. They would accept you. and They would begin a life following after you. For it's for your glory. It's about what you did. In Jesus' name.